take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter number 5. So thankful for what Jesus has done for us. And really, it's in understanding that better that we can better understand all the relationships of our life. You're going to see how that connects to marriage today. Go ahead and take out your worship guide that you should have gotten. If you didn't get one, step out and grab one here from the side entrance or from the front. You'll definitely want to... I'm guessing that this could be a sermon today where the most... uh, note takers take notes. I don't know about you, but I need to take notes for my marriage. Uh, I hope that this helps our marriages. I've been praying a lot about this series and knowing that the first message I was going to be delivering from the uh, book of Ephesians was on the relationship of marriage. So today we do start a short series here in the month of August focused in Ephesians 5 and 6. And the focus of our study is on how the gospel shapes the relationships of the home and how the gospel strengthens the relationships in our families. Um, And so, everybody look at me for a second. We can all be honest. None of us have a perfect marriage. None of us have the model marriage. We all come in this room bringing baggage from the brokenness of the fall of the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And when you enter into a marriage relationship, if there's something that you're going to get today in the, in the message, it's you enter into a crucible of discipleship unlike you have ever experienced in your life. And some of the couples are smiling at me because they know that's true. You enter into the reality of, whoa, I didn't know as much about even myself as I thought I knew, and I certainly don't know about as, as much about this person that I thought I married, and they've changed And I thought I was marrying one person, and I got another person. What happened? And so there's so much confusion around this issue, and no doubt there's a lot of even spiritual attack that's happening in messages like this because Satan hates the home. Satan hates marriages. He hated the first marriage, and he hates every marriage since then because marriage is a reflection of, Of the gospel. And you see this incredibly clear in Ephesians chapter number five. And so none of us have the perfect home. None of us have the model marriage. Many of us try to pretend like we do, but the reality is we are dealing with baggage left over from the fall of the human race and the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And so today we center our focus in Ephesians five and shine a light on the marriage relationship the bedrock relational foundation in the home is the marriage relationship. God shares some incredible truths in this passage to help us better understand this amazing relationship of marriage and how this relationship can be strengthened. And so I realized this morning that I'm talking to several different groups of people in this room. First of all, I'm talking to those who are yet to be married. And I want you to understand that as I'm preaching this message, I am not overlooking and forgetting those who are yet to be married. And maybe in that category of those yet to be married, there's two groups, those who don't want to be married and those who want to be, but they're just not yet. And so I'm thinking of you. I do believe that this message has truth for you as well. This isn't a message just delivered to married couples overlooking the single group in our church. And by the way, being single isn't being a second-class Christian, and we shouldn't rush singles into marriage just because that's what you're supposed to do. Um, no, that's not the case. When you enter into marriage, it's a crucible of discipleship, 
And it's a lifelong journey of growing in grace together and applying the gospel of grace to your life and to your marriage. And so we're not overlooking the singles today. Also, there's another group here today of those who were once married and who no longer are, whether either through the homegoing of a spouse to heaven or the brokenness of a relationship through divorce. And so that's another category of people today that I am uh, burdened for. My, my, my heart um, is thinking about you, and I've been praying for you this week in preparation of this message. And so I'm also thinking of those as well, and, and, and those folks who have gone through those uh, life experiences. And then, of course, I'm talking to married individuals here this morning. Married individuals, some who have been married only a few months, some who've been married a little bit over a year, some who are getting married in December, uh, and some who are getting married next year, uh, from what I hear. I mean, we've got all different groups. We've got people who've been married about five years. We've got people who've been married who now have one child or now who just got the news are about to have another child. We've got uh, families who are right there at age 45, 50-ish, where the kids are graduating from high school and now they're going off to college. Uh, I'm talking to people who've been married in here for 25, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and they could probably be preaching this message better than I could. Um, I've been married a little bit over 17 years, and it's a miracle we're still, still married, right, dear? <laughs> um, we have gone through a lot of trouble in our marriage and ministry. Listen, if you want to experience spiritual warfare in your marriage, just go into ministry while you're married and go into full-time ministry, and that adds a, a whole new layer of stress. And I'm so thankful for those who pray for my family. I was so touched yesterday by seeing the post that one of our church members made about how to pray for their pastor. Thank you. That means so much to both me and Rebecca that you would pray for us and think of us and remember us. And so there's all different stages of marriage in this room. And what I'm telling you today is I believe this applies to all of us in some way. And so with that, I'm just going to jump right into the text and then give you four truths that I believe this text pulls out. There's a lot of others here but for sake of time, we're just going to mention four, and it's already 1016, so we might just do two and make this a two-parter and hit it next time on August the 11th, but I hate to do that. So I will talk fast if you listen fast. Let's look at God's Word. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. It says this, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause... For this cause, this is actually, Paul is quoting a passage from Genesis 2, verse 24 here. 
So Genesis 2, verse 24 is the very first marriage ever recorded in human history between Adam and Eve, man and woman, husband and wife. For this call shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Today I want to give to you four truths from this passage that I believe will help us as we better understand marriage and we understand how the gospel applies to our marriage and how our marriage can be what God intended it to be. I'm going to have one more word of prayer because I need it. Let's pray. Father, help me now to be clear in communicating the truth you've laid on my heart to get across to my brothers and sisters in Christ, to these guests who are here. Um, For everybody in attendance today, single, used to be married but no longer are, those who have been married a little time, those who have been married for a while, who are seeing kids now get old and go off to college, those who have been married for 50 or 60 years. Father, I pray that your spirit would minister to our marriages today. Make our church stronger because of your gospel and help us to see how the beautiful, amazing gospel of your matchless grace rescues our marriages, restores them, rejuvenates them, gives hope and meaning and value to them. I pray that you would cast down the lies of the devil today that have been built up over years of wrong training. And may we see what the definition of marriage is, the purpose of marriage is, where marriage should be a priority in our life, and then the great secret of what marriage really can be in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all today, I want you to see from this passage how God defines marriage. How does God define marriage? Notice this verse, Ephesians 5.31 that we just read. It says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now, why is Paul addressing this here in the book of Ephesians? Well, he's talking to a church. And he's talking about how, um, in fact, if uh, we, we studied this when we went through the book of Ephesians together, and we talked about how Ephesians 1 through 3 is all about positional truth, positional. This is what God's done for you. Chapters 4 through 5, then, is this is what God is doing through you. Here's how the gospel saves you, chapters 1 through 3. And then chapters 4 through 6, here's how the gospel shapes you. And Paul says that in light of who we are in Christ, in light of the gospel, in light of the incredible rescue that God has worked on our behalf for our souls, here's how this now gets worked out in our life. And he addresses several relationships. And of course, Paul is wanting to strengthen this church. And he realized that the key to this church being strong is the husband and wife relationship. And so Paul here defines what marriage is. He gives to the, uh, the church of Ephesus here a pretty clear definition of marriage. Now let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard someone say this? Maybe not you, hopefully not you, or, or maybe back when you were early in your relationship, you said something like this, or you heard somebody say, I love you, 
but why do I need a piece of paper to prove that I love you? How many of you have ever heard that statement before? Talking about the issue of marriage. And so what, what you have today in the last 30 or 40 years is marriage has been on the decline and long range living relationships have been on the rise. People are avoiding the M word. They're avoiding commitment. They're avoiding getting married. And so when someone says something like that, they're basically asking the question, why do I need a marriage certificate to prove my love? What they're saying by that, without saying it, is they're saying that what they believe the definition of marriage is, is simply a passion and a feeling, and that's what marriage is all about. Question, do feelings and passions in marriage ebb and flow? Do they go up and down? They do if you've been married any length of time. It's not constant. I mean, what you felt in your dating and courtship is not necessarily what you feel 20 years later. Why is that? And what does that mean? I mean, I thought that we were supposed to have a white picket fence and live happily ever. I thought I married my Prince Charming and he's turned out to be Prince Dudley, you know, or, or, some, or vice versa. I thought I married the, uh, you know, the love of my life. She, is, she was the beauty queen. And now, you know, and so there's this whole, uh, this whole wrestling with the world. You see, there, there's this clash between the worldview of marriage and the Christian view of marriage. And here's what the Christian view would define marriage as from this passage. The Christian view of marriage would be defined as this. It is a permanent and exclusive public legal commitment to share every part of your life with someone without condition. It's a permanent and exclusive public legal commitment, meaning this commitment has legal teeth. This is a step of commitment that goes beyond just a momentary feeling like you want to love them. No, this is an action first. So marriage is not a renewable contract. Marriage, there are no prenuptial agreements in a Christian marriage, meaning you're not going into this thinking there's going to be an out. There's going to be a way of escape. No, this is a fierce love that says, I'm going to be committed to you till death do us part, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of sickness, regardless of personal wealth. I'm going to be committed to you. We say those vows. Those vows are very serious. And so the definition of marriage is a permanent and exclusive public legal commitment to share every part of your life with someone without condition. This, folks, is true love. This is true love. A commitment that says, I'm going to love you regardless of whether I wake up on Monday morning and I don't feel like I love you. I'm committed to you for the rest of my life till death parts us. So the F essence and definition of marriage is a permanent and binding commitment founded in a covenant relationship. A permanent, there in your notes, you can write that down, a permanent and binding commitment, just another way to define it, commitment founded in a covenant relationship. There are, and, and, and when you think about this, what a legal covenant commitment actually does is it makes marriage more intimate. It, it actually makes it more intimate, not less. Because what you're saying is, is now I'm committed to you without condition be who you're going to be. Show me who you really are. Because let's face it, all of us, when we were in the courtship phase, we were putting our best face on, weren't we? We were. We were, we were because up until that legal commitment, there was an out. And sadly, 
we struggle with this now in marriage car, like, oh yeah, now I've got the commitment. Now I can just be who I want to be. And, and so, and then, you know, we stop pursuing our spouse. And so therefore this relational uh, discord comes and, 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 and we mix up priorities and, and we have to start living life now with this person. And so, but, but this legal covenant actually makes marriage more intimate, not less. Now there's two kinds of relationships. Notice that I say that this commitment is founded in a covenant relationship. There's two kinds of relationships in our life. And it's so important that we understand how these two categories of relationships are working against us in our understanding of marriage. Number one, there's consumer relationships. Consumer relationships. An example of a consumer relationship is when you leave church this morning, you're going to go to a restaurant. And maybe you're going to go to a restaurant where you know the owner. It's locally owned and it's locally operated. And you've known this owner for 20 years. And so you've gone to this restaurant. It's got good food. It's a clean establishment. It's a fair price. But let me ask you a question. Even though you know the owner of that restaurant, even though you've gone, known them for 20 years and y'all have a great relationship, if that restaurant starts offering food covered in cockroaches and jacking up their prices, how much longer are you going to go to that restaurant to eat Sunday lunch? Not long, right? Because your needs as a consumer are more important than that relationship in that context. And so there are what we call consumer relationships where it's all about your needs getting met. And if your needs don't get met at an affordable price in, a, in, a, uh, in an agreeable manner, then you leave that relationship and you start going to a new restaurant. That's how most people look at marriage today. And if that's how you look at marriage, it's doomed from the start. Because it's not about whether your needs are getting met. And if not, you've got an out. You've got a way to get out of this relationship and go find someone else. Who, Folks, what we do when we put people in this place is we're actually putting them in place of God, saying, you're my Savior that can meet all of my needs. No, they can't. No spouse can ever do that. And so we leave a consumer relationship if our individual needs aren't being met because our individual needs in a consumer-based relationship are more important than the relationship with the owner of that establishment. But then we have covenant relationships. And I'm not going to use marriage as the example here, but use another covenant relationship, and that is between parents and their children. Question, do your, parent, do, do your children ever act like uh, 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 brats? <laughs> do they ever get on your nerves? Uh, do they ever give you a headache? Uh, do they ever not do what they're told to do? Yes? Do you have little angels? I need to take note. Okay, yes. Uh, Emma's raising her hand. She's like, yes, that's me. I saw that, Emma. That was great. So, so in a relationship between a parent and a child, you're raising the child. The child cries. The child is selfish. The child has bad behavior. You cannot say, I've had it. I'm just going to leave the child on someone else's doorstep. Now, there are a few parents who do that. And rightfully so, they get arrested for abandonment because even our culture knows that's a covenant relationship. Even though that child isn't meeting your needs, even though that child is being selfish, you are committed to that child in a covenant relationship. So the relationship with your child is not a consumer-vendor relationship. It's a covenant relationship. 
And so there's two kinds of relationships here. And what marriage is, if you look back at verse 31, it says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined or cleave unto his wife. That's what Genesis 2.24 says. And they two shall be one flesh. This is a permanent, binding, exclusive, legal commitment to share every part of your life with someone without condition. And so when you get married, when you give those vows, you are making a legal contract that you are at. And what you're doing in that legal commitment and in this covenant relationship is you're actually creating a cradle of security for vulnerability. Where for the first time, you're able to say, yeah, here is who I am and here's what's wrong with me. (laughs) And here's how we can grow together. It makes it possible for us to be actually more intimate. And what this covenant relationship does in marriage is it creates intimacy, it creates stability, and it creates freedom, true freedom. What do I mean by creating true freedom? Well, think about it. This world does not know commitment today. Uh, As one philosopher said, if you don't know the discipline of making a promise and sticking with it, you're actually not a free person. You're a slave to your impulses and enslaved to the moment. And isn't that what we see in most relationships today? It's all about the impulse. It's all about the the pleasure of the moment. And there's no long-term commitment. And so if you don't know the discipline of making a promise and sticking with it, you're actually not a free person. What a concept to think about in this issue of marriage. So marriage is a cleaving. It's a leaving of an old family unit, and it's the cleaving to your spouse and really literally a new creation of a new family unit. It's a commitment and a covenant, an unconditional covenant just as God's covenant is with his people, as Christ loves the church, as we'll see in just a moment. So the essence or the definition of love is a commitment. Love is an action first. It's a commitment to invest yourself in another person and meet their needs, and then the feelings flow. Um, Sometimes, you know, we are told, well, I don't feel like I love my spouse anymore. Question, do you always feel like you love your kids? No, you don't, but, but you stay committed to those children. And after 18 years, even if they don't turn out the way you hope they did, even after 18 years, you've been so committed to them that you feel love for them. And somewhere along the way, we forgot that sometimes we wake up and we don't always feel like we love our spouse. We don't always feel like we love them. But the challenge there is to stay committed and to make sure that we see that love is an action first. Love is an action first. So we see the definition of marriage. It's a permanent and exclusive public legal commitment to share every part of our life with someone without condition. Number two, then, what is the purpose of marriage? So, okay, pastor, this is an unconditional covenant. It's a commitment that I'm making to someone for life. Then what's the purpose of marriage? Why should I get married? You can see I asked you a question there. Think back to your marriage, however long ago that was. Why did you get married? Why did you get married? Um, I I tried to think about that question this week and introspect myself, (laughs) examine myself. What were my expectations going into marriage? 
Did I think that this lovely, beautiful lady over here was going to fulfill my every hope, wish, and dream, and that she was going to make me happy all the days of her life? Honestly, that's probably a lot of how I viewed marriage. That it was going to be this continual romantic fairy tale that we'll, we will be whisked off from one adventure to another. And then we got home from our honeymoon, and I had to start traveling for the college that we were a part of, that we graduated from. I was representing them. So I was gone for three or four days, and bills start to come, and financial decisions start to come, and life just starts to happen. And where did the fairy tale go? How many of you know what I'm talking about? When you get married, and after, you know, a month or so, two months, it doesn't take long. (laughs) Not in this world, it doesn't. You're like, where did the fairy tale go? I thought that it was supposed to be happiness, joy, and bliss the rest of my life. If that's what you think the purpose of marriage is, then then we're going to be disappointed. And so listen closely. Why are you getting married or why did you get married? What was the goal? See, here's the common thought and response. It's just like I had on my wedding day. I thought, well, we get married because we love each other. But what do I mean by that word love, right? Oh, I like her. I like her a lot. You know, I'm like, oh, I like her. But somewhere along the way, after I get married, I fall out of like with my spouse. You don't fall out of love. See, see, I hear couples say this. Ah, I've just fallen out of love with myself. No, you've fallen out of like with your spouse. I really want to challenge you to see it that way. Because we, love is such a nebulous word today. We don't even know what that means. And so what is the purpose of marriage? Well, the common thought in response says we get married because we love each other. And what that means is, is we got married for romantic fun, happiness of life. We got married to combine our net worth together because we can make more money married um, and and to have a happy, comfortable life. And, And so what we've kind of done with marriage is we've American dreamized it, that that's what marriage is all about. And so because of that expectation and thought of what the purpose of marriage is, then we go off on this journey to find the perfectly compatible soulmate. Doesn't that sound lovely? On the dating apps, the perfectly compatible soulmate. That's a lie. You're not going to ever be perfectly compatible. How do I know that? Because of this, everyone brings into a marriage baggage from the brokenness of the fall of the first marriage. You don't marry a perfectly compatible soulmate. Oh, there might be things you have in common. You might be a good, good uh, mesh personality-wise. Certainly opposites do attract in those ways. But it's funny, opposites also push further apart, and we see that in marriage. So what's the purpose of marriage? It's not to find the perfect soulmate because, get this too, if marriage is as serious of an issue as it is, and it really is this covenantal commitment to one another— and it's a reflection of the unconditional grace of God, then that moment in life, even though you married one person before marriage, after marriage, that person is fundamentally different because now they're married. Now you're one flesh with that individual. And so in a fundamental way, their personality has been impacted because of you. So they're not going to be the same person. And we're going to come back to this here in a second because you're like, the person I married no longer exists. I'm living with an alien. You know, and that, and so there's this challenge then because we're like, okay, well, I thought I married, I thought I was looking for a perfect soulmate, but that doesn't happen, folks, because we all bring in to marriage baggage from the brokenness of the fall. So, If you're not married yet, I'm not trying to scare you from getting married. Actually, this is hopeful because you can go in with eyes wide open knowing 
that this is going to be one of the biggest decisions of your life. And it is a call to discipleship. It's a call to be transformed by the grace of God in your life. So the common view is we get married because we love each other and the other person makes us happy. The Christian view of the purpose of marriage is this. It's a crucible, and I use that word carefully. It's a crucible of deep character transformation. What's a crucible? It's where they pour in this, uh, or, 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 or they put in this metal, and the metal gets to an intense amount of heat, and it becomes liquefied to where it is now shaped into a brand new shape. That's what a crucible is. Marriage can be like that at times. It's a crucible of deep character transformation through deep friendship intimacy made only possible in the cradle of covenantal unconditional love. The title of this message is marriage, the cradle and the crucible, and you've got to have both. You're going to have the crucible, (laughs) whether you like it or not, but you also have to have this cradle of knowing that my spouse is with me, for me, and is committed to me, and it's in this cradle of covenantal unconditional love, grace, that rescues and restores and breathes life into your marriage. So the Christian view is is that I'm getting married for deep character transformation through deep friendship, meaning that this person with me for the rest of my life is going to make me a better me. They're going to bring out in me the image of Christ so that one day when I stand before God, I'll be able to know that I had a part in making in helping my spouse to become more like Christ, to be changed into his image, transformed by the renewing of our mind. You see, with the Christian view, we have a healthy view of what sin is. We aren't shocked any longer by the reality of marriage, and we understand human nature. And so we expect that we're going to face conflict, and we embrace those moments as an opportunity for real growth and transformation. Think about it, folks. It's easy to love people when they agree with you all the time. But is that really love? Actually, that's just love of self. When someone agrees with you all the time, you're saying, oh, I love them for how they make me feel. Do you hear that? That's self-love. That's not really love for the other person. But when you have a disagreement, that's the challenge and the test of covenantal love. And so as we think about this Christian view of marriage, we also then start to understand that we're not looking for the perfect companion because the perfect companion doesn't exist. We're not looking for a finished statue, if you will. We're just looking for a moldable piece of marble that God can help us to be a process of seeing that person transformed into the image of Christ. As I was reading a book recently on marriage, I was challenged with this thought, and I thought it was so amazing. The author said this. He said, Be in love with the person who you see your spouse becoming in Christ as they grow in grace. I thought that was a phenomenal statement. Because what that gives is it gives hope and understanding to where marriage is headed and why you're a part of this covenantal union with this other person. Be in love with the person who you see your spouse becoming in Christ as they grow in grace. You grow in love with that person that you see your spouse becoming. Perhaps you should say to your spouse, just shock them, say, your future excites me and it attracts me because I see glimpses of God working in you. 
And to affirm that when you see your spouse living selflessly, living as Christ would in his covenantal love, that you would say things like that and encourage your spouse as they grow and they mature. Think about it, folks. What will be the greatest day of your marriage? Thinking about this purpose of marriage. What will be the greatest day of your marriage? It will be when you stand not before the witnesses at the altar where you got married, but when you stand before the king of the universe and you're standing there and you look over at your spouse and you're like, I always knew that's who you were becoming. I saw glimpses of that as you were being transformed by grace and now you're in your glorified, resurrected body. Your spirit and soul and body are now made complete. And to know that I had a little part of that, Rebecca, is going to be the greatest day of our marriage. When I can stand and see who she has become in Christ, what a great day that's going to be. That, my friends, is the purpose of marriage. And it says it right here. Look at verses 26 and 27. Actually, let's look, at, look back at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Do you see that? Do you see that the purpose of marriage is that God would use you in your spouse's life to be able to stand there one day as his bride and know that you had the most intimate, the closest part of this person's transformation into the image of Christ. There will be no greater joy in all the world than to be there that day knowing that we had a part in that process. And so what is true intimacy? It's, it's, it's understanding that you've married your best friend and your best friend truly knows who you are. True intimacy is being able to share the deepest parts of yourself and still be loved, admired, wanted, and cherished. We're all looking for that, aren't we? We're all looking for someone who knows us the best, yet loves us to the heights, loves us unconditionally. Of course, that points us to the gospel because God ultimately is the one who knows you the best, and yet he loves you the most. And so we see the purpose of marriage. The greatest crucible of discipleship in one's life will be when they enter into the covenant union of marriage. In that covenant union, you find true intimacy, true stability, and you find true freedom and friendship. The purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is not to make you happy, but to help the other person live out their new holy identity as they are in Christ Jesus. Third, though, we see the priority of marriage. We're going to move quickly. The priority of marriage. Look at verse 31. It says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Notice here that the Bible says that a man shall leave. What is this saying? It's saying that God did not put, catch this, God did not put a parent and a child in the garden. He put a man and a woman, a husband and a wife in the garden. What this means is, is the primary relationship in your life, if you are married, has got to be your marriage. In fact, 
a marriage that allows any other relationship or any other pursuit to become primary is actually doing more harm to those other relationships than good. The primary person in your marriage has got to be your spouse. Look at what's on the screen closely because this is something that all of us need to evaluate. No other person should be investing more time, money, energy, creativity, and an emotional investment in your spouse, in, than, an investment in, than in your spousal relationship. Just let me read it from the paper. No other person, I think it's misquoted there, no other person should you be investing more time, money, energy, creativity, and emotional investment in than in your spousal relationship. Notice that God says here that a man shall leave his father and mother. Do you know what I see a lot of times in marital relationships? A spouse that has not left the old home. And so mom and dad, they mean well, but mom and dad step in and they try to interfere. They try to help. They, but what they're actually doing is they're creating a wedge between husband and wife. They're creating a level of distrust and intimacy because now the one spouse is not sure if, if, if what they're being told is not going to get back to mom and dad somehow. The priority of marriage must be your spouse understanding that you're leaving and cleaving. Look, look at verse 31 there. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined, cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. There's this brand new family unit that gets created in a new marriage. But look back at verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. You see what Paul's uh, emphasizing here? The priority of spousal support, of focusing on the spouse relationship as the primary relationship. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. This is God's way of saying that marriage must have priority out of all the other relationships and pursuits in your life. Marriage, if you're married, it is the center of your life. When you're married, it has the power to set the course of your entire life as a whole. Listen, men, men are going to agree with me when I say this this morning. Ladies, listen up. A man can be a winner in his job. A man can be a winner in his little league ball field as he's coaching. But if a man doesn't feel and doesn't experience winning at home, everything else seems like a failure. This is why so many men get driven into uh, professional pursuits and they bury themselves in their job and they become workaholics because, and, and they actually win and they're very successful, but they're, but they're always trying to prove more and earn more because they're not getting this at home. And so there's this disconnect. And, and so the priority of marriage takes a back seat to all these other things. If everything around you is struggling, but your marriage is strong, there's just something about it to where you can then walk out into all these other areas of weakness in your life from a position of strength. But if all these other areas are strong, but your marriage is not, then everything else immediately seems weakened. Marriage is the vortex of our life. If you neglect it, you will lose everything Therefore, Paul says that a man must leave father and mother. What he's saying is, be very careful that nothing comes before your marriage in your life. What are some things that can come before your spouse? Well, we've already mentioned one, parents. That's the one here in this passage, father and mother. Another one can become your career. Another one 
can become your children. (gasps) Children? Yes, children. This is very prevalent today because many Christian couples know that we aren't going to leave our marriage and go pursue an affair or, or, or do anything sinful. And so we think that, that, that making the marriage all about the children is okay. No, it's not. It's not. It's placing as priority something above your spouse. And actually, when you do that, Actually, you're breaking the biblical principle of Genesis 2. Because as we said earlier, it's not a parent and a child in the garden. It's a husband, it's a man and woman in the garden. If your children come before your spouse, if you get more out of your children and their love than your spouse, that is breaking the biblical principle and it will break you. Why? Because this is the way of the universe from the beginning. It wasn't a parent and child in the garden. It was a husband and wife. You cannot try to upend what God established at the beginning and it not bite back. It's to our own ruin when we neglect this reality. And so the challenge for us today is do not marginalize your marriage in the efforts and focus of being a family. For without your marriage, for without your marriage, you never would have even had a family. Do you see the priority? It's not that, it's not that we don't love our children, moms and dads. But it's that we do not allow children to replace our spouse. And I see this so much in marriages today. You've heard the illustration and you've seen it played out many times. Here's what happens. Couples married 15, 16, 18 years. They've had several children. These children have grown up. They graduate from high school and they go off to college. And what happens to the marriage? A large number of marriages break when the kids go off to college. And what that tells me is that for a long time before Johnny or Susie went off to college, the marriage had already been replaced. The spouse had been replaced with children. And the spouses were getting their primary love and affection from the children and not from their spouse. The priority of marriage So parents, career, children, friends, just other friends, whether it's the opposite gender or the same gender. Let me ask you a question. Is there someone that you enjoy being more with than your spouse? Is there someone that you feel like you can share more with than your spouse? Do you think that there's someone who better understands you better than your spouse? Mark it down. You're already headed for trouble because your spouse is to be your best friend, the most intimate relationship you have. One of the main reasons of, of marriage is friendship, companionship that leads to true discipleship. And so you have not left and you have not cleaved to your spouse. If parents are in the way, if parents have taken that priority, if your career has taken that priority, if your children or if other friends, your marriage is not central. If your spouse is not the number one relationship in your life, then to your own ruin, you are sowing trouble and tragedy in your life. There's a lot of other examples of how so many times uh, spouses do not leave, but we don't have time to go through those. But I just want to remind you of this, 
that when you get married, you're starting a brand new family. It's a new creation. And so even, even little statements like this, well, in my family, we did this. I'm guilty. I've done it. I'm sure you have. What, what we're doing there is we're saying to our spouse, I want to be a part of my old family. Because in my family, now, I understand sometimes you can say that, but sometimes we're like, no, in my family, we always at this way. Whoa, 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 whoa. You left father and mother, and you're now cleaving to your spouse. You're starting a new family. And so as a new family, there might be some new traditions. There, you, you might have experienced love in a certain way in your family, but this is a new family. The old is gone. The new has come. This is a new creation in Christ. It, it really is a mystery, as Paul says. This is mysterious. This is a miracle. This is, this is just like salvation. It's new. The priority of your marriage. And then finally, the secret of marriage. Look at verse 25. Oh, there's so much more here that we could say. Really, all this, folks, this whole marriage relationship that Paul's addressing springs out of verses 18 and 20, where he talks about being filled with the Spirit. And don't you agree that your spouse is going to be the person who knows whether you're truly filled with the Spirit? (laughs) And it takes that power. Where's the power to love like this? How do we love our spouse unconditionally? It only comes through the Spirit, through understanding the gospel. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That word love there, as you know, is the word, is the Greek word agape. Agape love, unconditional, a deep, unconditional, sacrificial love that can only ultimately come from the Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. And so the secret, the great secret of marriage is to be able to love your spouse during seasons in which you're getting very little, if any, love in return. Because look at the verse. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. Question, did Christ Jesus die for the church because they were lovely in and of themselves? No, we were ugly. We were in our sin. We were broken. We were were sinners, but Christ loved us before. In that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. So Christ did not die for us because we were lovely. He gave himself for it to make us lovely. And this is the picture of marriage, is that when the secret of marriage is when you can love your spouse, even when you're not getting any or little love in return. But what about my need? I know, but that's a focus on a consumer relationship. That's not a focus on a covenantal relationship, that I am with this person till death, and I'm going to work through these difficult seasons where Satan is trying to destroy our marriage, and, 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 and I'm going to see who this person is becoming, not who they were, not who they are right now, but Lord, give me a vision of who my spouse can become through your gospel, through your work, Holy Spirit. And so a marriage is built on agape love. It's not built on eros love. Eros is the Greek word for sexual. 
Oh, is that a part of marriage? Sure it is, and there's a time and a place to talk about that, but it's not built on eros love. It's not built on storge love, which is, which is family love. It's not built on phileo love, which is friendship love. A marriage is built on agape love, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. It's quoted so much at weddings, but do we really understand what kind of love that it's calling forth in our marriage? Unconditional. Being able to love my spouse, even in those seasons, when I don't sense that I'm getting any or little love in return. But in order to love your spouse that way, it takes what I call even the secret of the secret of marriage. And what does that mean? You can only love your spouse that way if you have a source of love from somewhere else that you can give that love to them. What I call this is love charity, where you're, and literally that's what the Greek word, charity, love charity. You can only be giving of that kind of love if you have a greater source of love, and that love comes from Christ. You can give much love to your spouse if you are drawing upon an infinite source of love from somewhere else. But this can only come from God, and this is what we see in the hope of the gospel. If God's love is a deep reality, deep reality to you and me, then you will be able to get through those seasons where you're not receiving much love from your spouse. If God's love is a true reality, then you won't melt down when your spouse isn't loving you like you think they should. But if your spouse is the main source of your love, then you're gonna melt down. Relationships are going to fracture because the spouse can never be the main source of your greatest need and your deepest love. That can only come from God. Our spouses can be great spouses, but they're lousy saviors. Our spouse isn't our entire world. Oh, they help our world be better. They help us more into the image of Christ, but Christ, our entire world. He's who we're living for. He's the cornerstone. And so there's only one Savior. Take a picture of this, write it down. I've said it before, but if I truly believe that everything I need is found in Christ, then I am already, I am now free to give everything to you without needing anything from you. That is love without condition. That's love. When I say, I'm going to love my spouse, even in this season where there seems to be zero love coming from them. And Father, I'm going to ask you by your grace to help me to love them through the Spirit's power. Yes, love is going to be in choice in that moment. I don't feel like it. But I'm telling you, it's just like today. I came in here and I didn't feel like worshiping God. I didn't feel like praising God. But through going through the actions of worship and praise and singing the song, somewhere there in that final song, my heart was overwhelmed. I'm like, whoa, there's the feelings again. God, I feel like I love you again. Thank you so much because there's days I don't feel that. But I don't live on my feelings. I live on the discipline of the action of what, hey, did God feel like saving us? Well, God's perfect. So not only did he give himself, and he knew that's the only way he could rescue us, but he was glad to do that because he valued us and he loved us. And so there's hope for our marriage. What's the conclusion today? Do you have the right foundational definition of what marriage should be as we went through that first point? Perhaps today you've been challenged to reevaluate the definition of what marriage is all about. Or perhaps you've misunderstood what the purpose of marriage is all about. Do we realize that the primary purpose of marriage is to transform us into the image of Christ and not to make us just superficially happy? 
Is our marriage the priority in our married life or is it something or someone else? Does our spouse get the leftovers of our love or do they get the main course? Have you decided that you're going to love your spouse even in seasons where you're getting little, if any, love in return? Here's what I'm asking you to do today in light of this truth. Number one, let us decide that we will allow ourselves to be vulnerable about our marriages in the context of true biblical community here in this church. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of pretending like my marriage is all okay and I got the perfect model marriage. Folks, I don't. I'm just like you. I need your prayer. I need your support. You know what I need? I need biblical, intimate relationships with other men in this church who are gonna challenge me to be the lover, the leader in my home. And so with that, we're gonna be doing some things in the coming year with men, having, having men who are fiercely loving, leading, loyal to their families. We need those relationships. Ladies, we need relationships with other wives where we're encouraging our wife to be what God has called us to be, to love our husbands. You see, we need this in this church. If the marriage relationship is the foundation of society and the bedrock of the home, then it's vitally important that the church be a place where one can receive the most care, the most support, the most encouragement, and the most training for their marriage. to happen here. We need to be able to say, you know what? My marriage needs help. And you know what? To get counseling, uh, when when you get counseling for your marriage, that doesn't mean that your marriage is all, you know, uber terrible, but it just means, hey, I need help. I've been married 17 years and I'm still not sure if I know exactly what I'm doing. It's a daily growth in learning and understanding. And what we have here in this church, I hope, is an environment where we can be honest about that, to be truly vulnerable about our marriages in the context of true biblical community. So you can do that here. I want to challenge you to do that. Number two, let us commit to mentoring and modeling gospel values in our marriage and seeking to disciple other couples in this environment of ministry life together. Write down this chapter, Titus 2. Just write it down, read it later. It's an incredible chapter, Titus 2. It talks about the elder women training the younger women to be lovers of their husbands. It talks about the men of the ch- the elder men of the church training the younger men of the church to be leaders in their home. I mean, God has just sparked a vision in my heart for this. Folks, we need help. Marriages in our society are crumbling. And if there's any hope that we offer through a practical outworking of the gospel of grace and the finished work of Jesus, it is that God can rescue, restore, redeem our marriages. When was the last time you had a serious discussion with your spouse about the health of your marriage relationship? Perhaps the most practical decision you can make today, couples, is to set up a date night for this week where you can focus on your relationship with your spouse. Talk about these four points today, the definition of marriage, the purpose of marriage, the priority of marriage, the secret of marriage, and talk about how that's being worked out in your life. If you need childcare, we'll set it up for free. We'll do it. This is so important. Perhaps what needs to happen today in response to this message is nothing more than for you to take your spouse by the hand 
and just kneel right there at your seat here in this room together and pray together that God would grow you as a couple. Yeah, you fell out of liking them. I get it. We all do. But you love them. Be committed to them in covenant, unbreakable, eternal love. Because, folks, it's going to be a great day when you stand there and you realize, I didn't give up on her. I didn't give up on him. They're now before the throne. And, oh, wow, look at them now. And I had a small part of that. That will be the greatest day of your marriage.